My name is Elizabeth Boykevich. My friends call me EB, so that means you can call me EB as well. I am so glad you're here. I spent the last 20 years in entertainment, first working in casting for theater, TV, and film. Most recently, I was the head of casting and talent while helping build two TV networks and brands at the Walt Disney Company. I am a leadership coach and facilitator, I'm a mindfulness guide, and I am a human being trying my best to human well. I dig all things around growth, creativity, curiosity, and storytelling. I realized there wasn't a place where actors could get to know casting directors and ask questions for free, so here we are. We collected over 100 questions from actors and we'll be answering them alongside a different casting colleague each episode. A giant thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Links to submit a question for the podcast and our guests can be found in the notes section of each episode. I hope this supports and encourages you on your acting journey. I love you. Keep going. The world needs your voice and your creativity. Welcome to Off Book. I am thrilled to introduce you to casting director Tiffany Mack. Tiffany is one of the most sought after and successful Vancouver based casting directors. She has cast countless TV pilots, TV movies, and film. Some credits include The Babysitter's Club, Alaska Daily, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, Fresh, and The Adam Project, with Grease Rise of the Pink Ladies coming out in 2023. Here we go. Enjoy Tiffany Mack. It's so interesting. So Tiffany Mack, <laughs> Tiffany Mack and I are talking about in this day and age, for me, one of the things that was very frustrating as a studio and network executive was if a show was being canceled or not picked up, of course, we would want to get to the actors. You want to get to the writers first before an announcement goes out. But one of the things social media has really screwed up as far mm -hmm. as what I would refer to as the common decency of information flow yeah. is the minute we would tell someone on the crew or start to tell actors the message was out so towards the end what would happen for me is the press release would be on embargo until one o'clock which would mean to say the press release pr would have given the information to the trades that such and such was not going to be picked up or this was the final season and then i would get a call like a half an hour before it was going uh, before it was going to run to say, okay, now you can start to tell people. And I remember those call picking up the phone yeah. and calling and saying, I'm so sorry, we just got this news. And then not being able to have the proper amount of time with the representative or whoever else on the phone to have the grieving process or to explain anything more, if I even knew it, which a lot of times we wouldn't know some of the bigger choices. Mm. And then it was like, hey, this is happening. Got to go. Don't let them talk to yeah. any other actors. I want to get to them first. And it was the shittiest feeling Boy. to be in between trying to give the information, trying to be respectful, but also try to protect any leaks or misinformation from getting out was one of sort of the nuts and bolts parts of the gig I do not miss. <laughs> agents, of course, agents and managers, they're also holding the um 
emotions of their performer. And I remember getting earfuls from managers sometimes. I had nothing to do with it. I was the messenger. I was trying to get to people once I was allowed to get to people. But Tiffany was just sharing a story of often, if we're working on shows, if you're any part of the crew, even high up on the crew, you're finding out now in the trades before your boss is telling you, before the network was about to get to you. And it's uh, a clunky thing. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tiffany, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited and nervous, but mostly excited. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with Tiffany Mack on probably more more than fingers we have in our hands, projects, pilots, mm-hmm. and, and series. And Tiffany Mack is one of the biggest Vancouver casting directors. She works on so many projects. You've probably touched every streaming service and nearly every network at this point in your career. It's always more. <laughs> there's it's always, always more, but I've been there, very lucky. There's always more to do. And I begged her. She made me beg to come in, to come in and talk. I was working on a show. You may have read about it in the trades because that's how I found out about it. Oh, boy. It was, it was a series. And we were four days out. We were on Tuesday, going to camera the following Monday. We were on the Tuesday. The night before, I had been given approval to go make the offers. So Tuesday morning, I'm about to make the offers. And all of a sudden, like an agent texts me to be like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your show. And you're like, what about my show? Well, yeah, exactly. It's just, oh, you haven't heard. And 10 minutes later, then I got a call from my agent who had read it, didn't even get word yet. I was like 45 minutes later, the producer called and said, that's how we found out. What happened? They just completely killed it. it. Killed it. It was the first of like those axes like it was I've never had it before I was stunned we were about to go to camera on our very first episode out of eight and according to the producer he was like oh yeah I can hear like the mill work that's being made and all of a sudden you could just hear all the the work slowly getting quieter and quiet as people were reading it someone got it on the crew and then started texting it yeah a hundred percent but it was so crazy because it's like the night before the studio had given me the approval I had no idea You know, you're making me think with social media, things have gotten Mm -hmm. so tricky. And on Shadowhunters, that was one where it was like, are we canceling it? Are we not? Yeah. And because that had such a rabid fan base, Mm -hmm. I'm a brick manager calling me all the time each day being like, you need to tell us as soon as you hear, you need to tell us, right? Oh my God. And what continued to happen, Tiffany, is I would call the agents, but the timing would be so tight because you'd have 10 minutes to get to every single series regular. And back in the day when we were only calling people, that's not the type of yeah. thing you want to confirm in an email or a text. Yeah. And I remember actors being really, really hurt. Mm-hmm. What you're describing, 100%, yeah. it sucks. You've been putting all this work yeah. into it. And then you feel more yeah. dis- disregarded or disrespected because they didn't yeah. have the decency to talk to me. Yeah. But we couldn't in some things because it would be a last minute decision and they would want to have it served to the press before it was leaked to the press so they could control it a little bit better. Totally. But what you're describing is like merger takeover shit too. It's not just. Yeah. I think like in the headline, like on deadline or whatever, it was sort of like first show to get the axe killed now. And then the opening sentences was cast and crew have been notified this morning. And I'm like, haven't because it's 1030 in the morning. They were not. Maybe the cast was, but I doubt it. The producers had just heard it. Or it would be something so awful like 
I don't know. We're giving it to the trades that have it on embargo yeah. until one o'clock. So I would be skipping lunch, sitting there, yeah. looking at the time clock and then being like, call, right? Totally. Totally. It feels like betrayal is a big word, but it just goes, what changed between last night when I was talking to the studio people and this morning? Did they know? Because it's- if they didn't know, they could have said, hold on making the offers or they would have been on the hook for thousands of dollars if I'd made the offers that night, if we had closed, you know? Like, I don't know how last minute they knew, or maybe they also didn't know. Tiffany, what I love doing is hearing, because I actually don't know the story either, where you grew up, how you got into the business, and then go from there. I mean, we've already come up with a with a conversation topic that I didn't even occur to me to talk about, but people need to know yeah. what's going on behind the scenes. So I love yeah. that you had presence that. Would you share where you grew up and how you got into this kooky end of the business? I was the child of two first-generation immigrants, and I was born in Winnipeg, which is the center of Canada. It's two hours north of North Dakota. Nothing about my life trajectory or my childhood indicated that I would go into film. I wasn't really allowed to watch TV until I was a teenager. My parents were both kind of academics. They were very kind of traditional Chinese parents, and they wanted to control the media that I watched, the influences that were around me for as long as possible. I remember like I was watching Sesame Street until I was in grade five and did not realize that that was not common. (laughs) Like what the kids would call ASMR. I just found it soothing. I wouldn't say I was sheltered, but in that sense, I was really sheltered. For entertainment, I was very sheltered. It was PBS or CBC, which is our Canadian broadcasting channel, up until I was a teenager. And then after that, it went like Home Improvement, Dawson's Creek, and then Oz, HBO's Oz. (laughs) Talk about wildly different Wildly different, wildly different, but it really kicked off my love of cable TV. To this day, I love cable TV. It was so eye-opening and gritty. That cast too, Harold Perrineau, Lee Lee Turgeson, was it Chris Maloney? Chris Maloney was in it. Kirk Acevedo. Yes. Yeah. The, The fantastic actors, a lot of New York theater actors before they became TV stars, like beautiful actors on that show. Huge, right? I wouldn't say I never thought I'd be an actor. It's just that I didn't know anything about film. So when you're this seven-year-old in Winnipeg, you don't really know what film options are. There wasn't at the time much of a film community there. I remember in grade two, a class was doing a little school play and I asked if I could be a part of it and they said no. And I went, oh, you said I can't be in this play. I'm going to write my own play. And that is actually how this all started was me just feeling like I had been excluded and going, well, I don't even think I like acting or writing and I'm going to do it kicked off something in me where the creative process was really interesting. And I didn't know that a casting job existed. I thought if you like actors and you like film, you need to be an actor. And now it's funny looking back 20 something, 30 something years later, where I'm like, I hate being in front of the camera. I'm wildly self-conscious. I would not have a thick enough skin to be an actor. I have so much empathy for what actors have to go through. But at the time I was like, oh, well, this is film. This is what you have to do. So I went through high school thinking, oh, I probably won't be an actor, but maybe I'll explore what else is out there. I moved from Winnipeg to Vancouver and I became a background actor to be on set for the first time. I wanted to see what a film set was like. And it was the movie Cheaters starring Griffin Dunn and Mary Tyler Moore. I cold called. I didn't know what to do. I was 13 years old and just moved to Vancouver and I cold called production offices asking to speak to their extras casting director. When you were 13? When I was 13. I went, oh, is this just what you do? And I was so lucky that one casting director, her name is Lisa Ratke, veteran extras casting director. She's still doing it now. 
um, said, oh yeah, I'm actually, I'm looking for teenagers to do a high school scene next week. And then before I knew it, in three days, I was standing on set in the audience for a Mary Tyler Moore scene going, what is this? Yeah. And did you think that was so cool when you were in set? Coolest thing ever. The coolest thing ever. When I was in high school, once in a while, I'd take days off to go and be an extra in things on TV shows and film. And when I was in college, my degree is in criminology with a minor in sociology. I thought that I was going to go to law school or I'd do something in the criminal justice system. And to pay for my tuition, I became a production assistant. I was kind of joked that when I was a non-union extra, that was like the next stage was just like, get that crew lunch. The right. crew lunch is great. It's perfectly <laughs> catered. You get benefits and a little bit more pay. So I became a PA. I was doing four days in school, three days production assisting to pay my way through college. And I thought this was all just saving up for law school. So once I got my degree, it was April. I was going to go to law school that September and I was going to move to Ontario in August. And that summer I went from production assisting to becoming a casting assistant. I applied to be a cast assistant on a show and the production coordinator said, actually the actress bringing up their assistant, but have you ever considered casting? I went, oh my gosh, well, I always loved actors. I'd read books and see who I'd cast in them. And she said, two of my best friends are two of the top casting directors in Vancouver. Would you be interested in being their assistant? And my interview with them was on the Thursday. And I remember I went back to the set of, I think it was, I think it was Kyle XY. You may not know this, but I was actually the production assistant for two seasons of Kyle XY. I had no idea. I'm the casting assistant there. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. So it was like Thursday, I did the meeting. Friday, I I finished up on set with Kyle XY. And then Monday, I was working at the casting office for it. For that show. For that show. Kyle XY was a seminal ABC Family series when we were starting the network. And that was Mm -hmm. a... The, the key art was sort of arresting. It was beautiful Matt Dallas yeah. holding up a shirt showing he didn't have a belly button. Beautiful, handsome alien. And by the way, yeah. you know who's one of the first people to listen to this podcast and email me thank you about it was Matt Dallas. Really? Yeah, it was very sweet. Oh, he was the sweetest guy down to everyone. Like day call, show call PAs. He'd know our names. He was just such a positive presence. He was, I think, folding jeans at the Gap or something. Like wow. Like he had, had some... He had, he was working retailer, just started working real t- retail when we met him. And that was one of those shows you've worked on many of these, mm-hmm. especially when you're working in the YA space or anything that has certainly sci-fi kind of IP attached. Yeah. The amount of people we saw, the amount of young men we auditioned for that role, because it was tricky. It had to be someone that was sort of dreamy and handsome, but had no idea. Totally. So we would read a lot of these young, handsome guys, but they'd come in really like cock of the walk. Yeah. (laughs) And the energy was completely wrong. And so finding a softness, a sweetness, an otherworldliness, along with the look of what would be a beautiful human, but is really an alien. And that's Matt. I mean. Yes. Yes. And what got me off on that tangent too, is that was his first job. He was completely new. And I love that he, we talk a lot on the podcast, Tiffany, about be the person that would make your grandmother proud on set. Or when you go into casting offices, be kind and be respectful. That's it. That's the Mm -hmm. biggest part of how you need to worry about conducting yourself. And that's what Matt did. Oh, I believe that. And he didn't change. He was number one on the call. She always showed up on time, was always in good spirits and it trickles down, right? It was such a pleasurable set to be on. 
for sure. Yeah, and some of them aren't. This one was. Everyone was like a family and it was a well-oiled yes. machine. Yes. Number one on the call sheet, you and I know how important that is to actors and it's sort of a, a, a crossing over point or a point of like real affirmation and validation. I could not hate hearing number one on the call sheet more because I cannot <laughs> tell you anytime someone would call to discuss number one on the call sheet, it was because someone was having some crazy ego freak out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And those call sheets are kind of BS, to be honest, when it comes to the numbers. First of all, who cares? What are you trying to prove with that? Are you trying to exert your authority or your dominance on the set? And then once you get into like the other series regulars and the guest stars, I don't know how 80s do it. I'm not an AD, but there's no science to it often. <laughs> right. That's right. And so sometimes the call would be to me as the head of network casting of like, well, who should we make number one on the call sheet? It was always like, oh man, come on. Yeah. I remember Tiffany, there was one production that was like, oh God, they were trying to get around it, but they made it worse because no. they were like, well, we'll have one A and one B. Then we'll have two Which A and two B. It's like, oh my God, this is the worst idea ever. <laughs> Don't do it. And if they're block shootings, it'd be like one A dash lowercase I. Yes, like yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like, no, this is making it worse. And yeah. people that have worked in production a long time are like, I anticipate with this cast, it's going to be an issue. Let's, <laughs> let's yeah. figure it out. But yeah. it's pretty funny. Number well, those one. Those all-star ensembles, must, everyone must just be number one. There's just wow. no rhyme or reason. Wow. It's just all going to be number one. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I didn't know that story. I had no idea that you were working yeah. as a PA there. I'm curious what your emotional journey was with it. Do you remember being mm -hmm. excited to go do law or was it, I'm really smart, I studied this and this is what's going to make my parents comfortable? Do you remember having a conscious feeling about it or was it, this is what I'm doing? Yeah, oh, here's I think something cooler. It was a little bit of both. I always really enjoyed law and the criminal justice system. A bachelor's in criminology is not going to do a whole lot for you unless you are really, really good at it or you do further education or you find another path there. I always really loved it, but it was like an eight and a half. You know, okay. And I go back now, like, what would I have done? Where would I be now if I had done that? And I'd probably be doing the same amount of hours at a law firm. I'd probably have lost most of my hair and <laughs> been very stressed. And I don't think that my love of it would have sustained for as long. Whereas my love of film has been something I've had since I was in grade two, not getting picked for that school play. It started off with spite and then it became a genuine passion. I appreciate the collaboration to create something beautiful, whether it's lighting, production, design, set deck, wardrobe, acting. And I think that the acting part is what I've always been the most compelled by. And it's not even about famous actors. When you watch Oz, like Oz was such an eye-opener. I loved the performances there, but I couldn't quantify what I loved about it. And none of them were that famous at the time. There were huge theater actors in New York, but they weren't household names. That's right. But there was just something about watching someone go through that process and that journey that I went, I know that I can't do that myself, but I would love to be a part of that journey somehow. I started working for that casting office in June of 2006. And in August, I had to go, well, am I accepting or am I staying here? And I had to break it to my parents. I think I'm going to stay in casting. And how they receive that. I mean, like when I stopped crying, they, <laughs> no, I mean, they were not happy. They, they love me. They still love me. They weren't thrilled, but it was, it was a worry. It wasn't a disapproval over the job choice. It's just that they couldn't understand it. To them, a job isn't really a job unless it has to do with your post-secondary education. That was something they always said. So it didn't make sense to them. 
now it makes a bit more sense to them. But at the time it was so unheard of. And it was yeah. something that no one in my family had anything to do. My family are everything from doctors and dentists and lawyers to Dunkin' Donuts staff. And like it's all different types of jobs, but no one is in film. Right. So it's, it's hard for them to their head their heads around. Deb George was talking about that. Certainly my parents were like, wait, you're doing what? Yeah. And my mom would say to me once a year, okay, so you go in the office and you do what? Like, what is your job? Yeah. Um, I get it. And also being first generation. Mm-hmm. Completely. People move to give their kids predictable, lucrative opportunities. Yeah. 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 Part of the reason why we moved from Winnipeg to Vancouver was just the idea that our futures and our job opportunities would be better moving a three-hour flight away. So the idea of going into a job that has no job stability whatsoever was terrifying to them. One thing I actually wanted to mention is part of what made me also interested in casting was I thought maybe I'd want to be a producer. I wanted to be an assistant director. And I was working on a film I can't remember what film it was, but Lauren Schuler Donner, I like worked up the courage. It was the last day of filming and I worked up the courage to go up to her to ask what her advice would be if I wanted to be a producer or do something with actors. And she said, read all the books you can and think of who you were, who you would cast in those roles. And I think that was actually what started the casting muscle going. That's so interesting. Yeah. I- I worked on the first X-Men and that was Lauren Schuler Donner. Yeah. As an assistant. I got to be in the room with her and she was so meaningful for so many women in film because she was one of the few first Mm -hmm. super successful women that was doing it. I remember some of the actresses coming in really looking forward to kissing her ring and saying thank you. That was very good advice. It was it was huge advice and she was so supportive on that set. And she she also brought that kindness to set. But me being a PA who got thrust onto set, I had no idea what etiquette was. I was working up the courage for weeks to go up to her and she couldn't have been nicer. But it was really good advice. I think regardless of whether you're in casting or acting, anyone, you should be reading books that help you visualize whatever aspect of film you're interested in. Yes. Right? Whether it's the cinematography, how would you shoot this? Whether it's the acting, how would you develop this character? Um, it was really valuable. Yeah, that's so smart. And so well said too, Tiffany. When did you start to decide to go out on your own? What was that? Yeah. So after I spent a couple of years at the casting office and I worked on some of the biggest shows and movies with them, I was offered a position at a low budget production company that was churning out very inexpensive TV movies, movies of the weeks and series. I was given the opportunity to start casting my own projects. So it was really tantalizing. I took the job. It was a huge pay cut. It was a lot of hours. It was a lot of pressure, but I loved the pressure. I loved the responsibility of getting to pick the actors who were going to audition, sit through the auditions and give notes. And then in six months, the company folded. (laughs) So it was a lot of setbacks, like steps forward, step back, step forward, step back. I think that the idea of going out on my own was thrust on me by circumstance more than anything I thought that I was going to work for this production company I was part of their in-house casting working for the casting director I was the associate and then all of a sudden in six months I was unemployed it became circumstance and connections the producers I'd worked with who still had MOWs coming up here and I needed to sink or swim (laughs) this all happened during the stock market crash this was fall of 2008, the stock market crash. And by January, 2009, I was out of a job. 
I had just gotten my first house. Like I moved out of my parents' place. It's the house I'm still in. It's the apartment I'm still in. I moved out in the September and then January I was out of a job. You're reminding me when you're sharing the timing of this, Kyle XY is when more production started going to Canada. There was not a ton. And then because there was such a great tax break, there was more and more work there. And it's so interesting. Here's you think an opportunity and I'm going to be living pretty well off of this. And then the unpredictability of this business even when you feel like, oh, I'm on staff, you just never know. There was none of that. I definitely used my benefits though and got RMT massages every day leading up to my (laughs) last day. I'm going to use those benefits up. It's January, they reset. I got to do it. But yeah, absolutely. There's no certainty whatsoever. That was like January, 2009 until 2010, 2011. It was just me. I would do maybe one or two MOWs a year and I was stoked and the money was terrible, but it kept me in it. And it's funny because to this day, I still have my non-film resume. It's maybe like a year or so out of date because everything's just been filmed since 10 years, but I still have it on my computer. In 2009, 2010, I would do focus groups to get an honorarium and make some cash. And to this day, I haven't unsubscribed from those lists because I'm so superstitious or worried that something can happen. I'm like, maybe I'm going to need to make 125 bucks talking about my favorite type of orange juice. (laughs) But I think there was a lot of fear at the time, fear of the unknown, fear of what my own capabilities or weaknesses are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went into a lot of debt, just trying to stay afloat. Then in January of 2012, um, I started doing non-union commercials. I would do one or two once in a while. And a commercial casting director I worked with said, hey, a couple of my friends are doing this little promo spot for Warner Brothers for Red Riding Hood. Do you remember that movie with Amanda Seyfried? Yes. So they were doing like the little PR campaign and doing like mini movies. Do you want to cast that mini movie? And to me, that was, oh my God, it's my first studio casting job. (laughs) I was over the moon. It was like a promo. It was basically a a lengthy commercial or TV spot. And I cast it. And from those producers, they referred me to a producer who was doing Mortal Kombat, the web series with Kevin Tantrum. They came to me and asked me if I would do it. And those are people that I'm still working for to this day. I don't know if you remember Chris Foss. I think he worked on Christmas Bounty with us. Chris Foss was the one who hired me on Mortal Kombat after I did that Warner Brothers commercial for Red Riding Hood, which I can't remember if he was part of that too. He might have been, but I owe my career to him. So I went from barely working, doing a TV spot for WB, and then yeah. Mortal Kombat. And those are people I still work with to this day. This is a theme that continuously emerges as well, too. Like, you never know what relationship or what little gig you think that you, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes, but can be characterized as like, I'm going to roll my eyes and take this little gig. But then that yeah. turns into a beautiful yeah. working relationship and to other work mm-hmm. and to more work. Optimizing for synchronicity. Ooh. And I love this idea about optimizing for synchronicity because mm-hmm. what you just showed, the way everything lined up and taking this led to this mm-hmm. and then to this. First of all, you were so driven and clear that you wanted to be in casting. Mm-hmm. You were doing other things to get there. It really strikes me how much your journey is a lot like an actor's journey when they're building their business. Absolutely. And sort of busting your butt to do to do it in any in whichever way you can, even if you didn't have particular training around that area. And then yeah. it started to click. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell actors who 
are kind of struggling regardless of their timeline. Some of them are new, some of them are not new, but they haven't been working consistently and they used to before. And I think that there's a lot of pride that makes people think like, oh, I, I'm above this. I'm above this. And I think that at that time, I've finally gone from casting associate to being credited as casting director for certain things. And if my pride had said, oh, I'm not going to cast this non-union commercial and reconnect with this person, they would not have referred me to people. I don't know if it's necessarily say yes to everything, but I think that the whole principle of say yes to everything generally is actually really smart. As long as it doesn't hurt you, it can really only, at the very least, will be a teaching lesson, even if it does hurt you. I've had a lot yeah. of those teaching lessons too. Yeah, for sure. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. That's a part of growth is screwing it up or having mm -hmm. one that you were like, I knew I shouldn't have done it. That's part yeah. of growing too. Yeah. It's interesting. I want to unpack this a little bit more. I love you saying it's not necessarily saying yes to everything, being open to everything. Mm -hmm. Share a little story. Tell me what you hear. I was talking to a girlfriend who she has throughout her career run major, major TV studios. She now is working in animation. And she said to me the other night at dinner, you know, there's not the money in animation. There's not money in kids animation. She said, I am happier in this job than I have been in any other job so far because the people that work in animation love it. Mm -hmm. This is their form of self-expression and of creativity she's like so i get to work every day with people that are doing it because they love it mm -hmm. right not the people that know i'm gonna make a lot of money if i do this pilot and it's let me throw my ego everywhere i just thought this was yeah. so interesting yeah. and i think for me there's some connection here tiffany about it's about getting outside of your ego a little bit as you were sharing mm -hmm. like oh i can't do that mm -hmm. Being able to focus on whatever your values are, right? Yeah. Which is like, if I want to be able to act, express myself and share my gift, mm -hmm. if that is how you are defining one of your values, then that helps you figure out to get out of your ego in certain ways. Completely. Right? Completely. I think it's partially values, partially survival mode. It's funny you say that about animators. I think one of the most unique projects that I've done is it was a mini series for Netflix that just came out called Lost Ollie. It was starring Gene Rodriguez, Jonathan Groff, Jake Johnson, and Kessler Talbot. Kessler Talbot is a very talented young Vancouver actor. And it was a Netflix series that was live action and animation. It was directed by Peter Ramsey, who did Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and created by Shannon Tyndall, who did Kubo and the Two Strings. So between the two of them, they have a huge animation background. They've done a bunch of things other than that too. And it was the most pleasurable and rewarding creative project I've ever worked on. Wow. Because I think that there's something about people who are animators at heart where they don't have that ego. They were the people who just love building a world. And but I think in general, just the culture that it fosters. I've always been the geek. When I was in high school, I was always the geek. So I feel like I relate more and more comfortable around people who are dorky creatives more than LA types, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting that you say that. And I wonder what else accounts for that because I shared what my girlfriend said the same thing. Now that she's working with animators, she's never been happier, more fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's also something your world creating mm -hmm. 
but you have so many different artists. I don't know. And now I'm curious. Yeah. To, I'm actually talking to a voiceover casting director on Monday. Oh, Sarah, really? Sarah Jane Sherman is coming in to talk to oh, us. So I'll be interested to dig into this with her too, because mm -hmm. when you don't have like people's egos on set and when there really is, is it because there really is one creative voice, which is different than casting with a bunch of other humans. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I would be curious to know what, what, yeah, I'm excited to listen to that one because I would be really curious too. Yeah. It was something I've never really had experience in, like auditioning yeah. voice actors. It's not something I've done much of. I just found that their process was really interesting and just seeing it come together was really unique. And what was that process? Can you give a little thumbnail sketch? It's funny because when we watch auditions or self-tapes, we're obviously so used to watching the actors and watching the facial nuances. And here it was listening to MP3s of people voice acting. And voice acting is such a different art than on-screen TV and film acting. And it's picking up a performance, but also having to be mindful, at least for me, of like, how is the final product going to sound? Yeah. I think that how people act on film and TV, if you watch a, your favorite TV show and you close your eyes, what they have to do with their voice to deliver the lines are different than for voiceover. The enunciation, the cadence is just a little bit different. You're also picturing the animation that's going to go with it. It's different than ADR even, right? Yes, <laughs> ADR is still, sure. mimicking, it's still mimicking live action. I worked on a bit of animation and had to do some voiceover casting for characters. It is not my area of expertise, but it would be like, okay, look at the character. Everyone close your eyes. Listen yeah. to this voice. Yeah, that was that's what I ended up doing. Most people would be on MP3, but even just seeing the little ticker for an MP3, I just found I had to literally close my eyes and blackness just to really listen to the voice in a different way. The way our brain registers and our body registers and fills in so much more when it's just the voice and you mm -hmm. don't have the visual, like how we recognize things. When I was a baby assistant, I was hired by Eileen Starger, who was doing the new parent trap. And I was hired to do the search. She was in LA. I was hired to do the search in New York, which Lindsay Lohan came out of. But mm -hmm. at that time, Tiffany was when Annie was on Broadway. It's on a Broadway like every six years. And Nell Carter yeah. was Mrs. Hannigan. So I was seeing Whoa. all of these young Annie and the gang at Annie Kids. And this is back when we had to put the VCR tape in and press on the giant camera. Mm -hmm. And I remember at night then having to go through the tapes to see who I was going to send to LA. Th that style of kid acting, especially when you're doing Annie on Broadway, the bigness mm -hmm. and the gee gosh golly arms and the whole everything. Mm -hmm. I started turning the sound down when I would watch the tapes to watch their bodies and yeah. see how they were moving because mm -hmm. I was able to clue into who was being a little bit more real and who was connected in a different yeah. way than people that weren't. So yeah. it's interesting, all these yeah. different things, we're talking about how you show up with your voice, how you show up with your physicality, how the work and the studying that you've done with the mm -hmm. material, with the script, all of these things are showing up in your audition. I really have so much empathy for what actors are going through now. You know, we've been talking about just the the lack of connection with casting and with the audition process, just with how self-tapes have been going. I really hope that actors know that like the work they do, one, we watch all of them, at least I do. And two, all the choices that they're making, all the work that's done, we see it on screen. Yes. Yes. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast too, because people were not able to build relationships with casting directors or mm -hmm. meet them. And so I wanted to show the casting directors that are 
real fans of the work and as people and then to share and have this conversation trying to bridge that gap it's super hard i can't remember i shared this with you i went for a walk with a girlfriend who's here she's actually canadian but she's here and uh -huh. she and her husband are doing self-tape factory and she said we just feel like we're taping we're putting auditions on tape and then tossing them into the ocean Right. I've heard that so many times, that specific analogy. That's how it feels, just into the ocean, just sunk yep. and never seen again. Yep. And the feedback has also been nice because actors have been emailing the casting directors after they hear them on the podcast saying like, oh my gosh, I needed that encouragement because it was feeling like people weren't watching our stuff. <laughs> it's interesting. I've been thinking too, because of my coaching background, actors always wanted feedback or agents always wanted feedback. And you and I know from being on the other side that often the feedback is like, they were great. It yeah. wasn't them. Like yeah. they were great. It wasn't them. But I wonder if there is something now that can be done that is closing sort of the energetic loop for actors yeah. or agents. Yeah. I've had actors say my agents don't even tell me if they've received my tape to send it in. That's yeah. obviously an extreme example. And that is yeah. certainly not every representative. But mm -hmm. now when we're pushing around so much information, I think even just to like a received a yes or a no on mm -hmm. something would yeah. go a long way to help. I do sometimes wonder whether it would be beneficial, even if we just send out a mass email or email to all the agents who had actors who taped, just to say this role has been cast. But does that help at least just to put some closure on that tape? At least just to know like, okay, this roll down, this roll yeah. down. Look, yeah. this roll, this roll down. Maybe that's helpful. I'm interested in any sort of harm reduction around it because the mm -hmm. fact of the matter it, it is, well, the same girlfriend said to me, here's the plus. Here's the plus. I'm spending a lot less time crying in my car after a shitty audition. <laughs> and and yeah. I, like, you know, I laughed. It was like, well, first of all, no one should be. That's terrible. Yeah. But we were talking about how even that's an answer, right? For an yeah. actor, if they're in a room and can read the room or feel like, oh, yeah. I didn't do a great job. As painful yeah. as that is, there's at least some closure around it. <laughs> For sure. You know? For and sure. just not being able to get a yay or nay, yeah. got it, didn't get it, or the role is cast and we're we're down the road, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the perfect solution is, Yeah, but I, I do know it has been really hard on actors. It's been hard on casting too. It's been hard on everybody. I think I'm by nature an introvert. So during COVID lockdown, I thrived. Getting to watch tapes by myself, I kind of thrive. But I know that the lack of feedback would be very frustrating. Yes. Yes. People. Or just an answer, right? Even if there isn't, even if there mm -hmm. isn't the feedback. Yeah. And yeah. as you said, we're not going to come up with a perfect answer for an imperfect thing, but maybe an imperfect answer that the, they're just, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's something else to do or not, mm -hmm. because it's easy for me to say like, well, auditioning is a different skill than acting. True. You Very come true. in, you show them what you're going to do and it's mm -hmm. you or it isn't true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with even more being that much more removed and not having, listen, show folks, artists, we're doing it to connect. And so mm -hmm. you're auditioning, you're not connecting with a person. There's also something to be said about, sure, you know, you'd have people in who would come in an audition and they were awesome. You knew it wasn't going to be them. But mm -hmm. being able to say to an actor, that was so great. Like, we'll see you in on this next week, whatever it is, yeah. is meaningful. Mm -hmm. It goes a long yeah. way. I mean, that's been actually one thing that I've really liked about self-tapes is, you know, am I requesting more self-tapes than I would 
get people into the room? Absolutely. But now my depth of knowledge about the pool that we have is huge. There's only, there's only 24 hours in a day and there's really only maybe at best 12 hours in a day that I can do auditions. So there's a finite number of people I can see, but now with self tapes, I've booked a lot of people who have just gotten onto my radar in the last two years and they've been at it for a while, but they couldn't get into the room because there were just too many people. And then you just see the one self tape or the two self tapes. And now I see them continually. That is such a good point. A lot of casting directors have talked about now they're able to give more audition opportunities because they can now use that time to watch more tapes, right? So Mm -hmm. if you were normally seeing 15, now you can see 25 or whatever it is. Yeah love this perspective too because it's really true you have been able to educate yourself and see more on in actors Mm -hmm. than normally you would have so it's broadened your pool and and you've been able to hire people in a different way and look at them in a different way because of it yeah you know like agents are still very diligent about pushing and sometimes you try pushing to get them into a session you just didn't have room in the session now you have no reason to not accept a push unless they're just the roles cast or they're very very not right for it but there's really no reason to not accept a push otherwise. So now at the very least, I get to see an actor who this agent believes in and now they're on my radar. Yeah, yeah, that's such an interesting point. Tiffany, have you done any Zoom callbacks so far or are you mostly doing self-tapes? Oh, so many. So many. How has that process been for you? I really like it. I think the biggest struggle that I'm finding are actors of every age range, but actors who aren't familiar with Zoom and the little technical things, the the lag or not knowing how to turn on their audio or not knowing how to unmute themselves. I know that it's tech is sort of a specific skill that not everyone has. And that's probably been the most time consuming part. You can't see as many actors on Zoom as you could even in the room. In the room, you could kind of get people in and out physically, but here you have to allocate time for futzing and figuring out the mute and figuring out the best Wi-Fi or data signal on, the, on what device to use. But I have really enjoyed Zoom for the the collaboration with the actor and the ability to give redirection. That's the hardest thing about self-tapes. I'm sure you've heard this a lot from your from your own experience and from other casting directors. You have somebody who's done a great tape, but it's maybe that just this one thing that you wish that they had done differently. And maybe it's not a huge role and you're under a time crunch and you go, do I ask them to retape or do I just go on to the next one? And that conundrum is probably the hardest part is just not being able to give that redirection. Because I don't want to make an actor go and find their reader, find a cam up, get their lighting setup done to adjust one line. Right. I'm trying to be sensitive to that, but you also don't want to take away the opportunity from them either. And I would imagine too, that in some of those instances, there are the people that you have the depth of knowledge about where you can say, trust me, they can do it. Yeah. And here's a, here's a part in their demo that shows that they can, or here's Mm -hmm. another self tape that I have from a project I did six months ago that shows that they can. Actors need to know that casting directors will use every tool at their Mm -hmm. disposal to, if we think it's going to help get you the gig. All the time, all the time. You know, having an up-to-date demo is really important, but we keep obviously every single self tape and audition we've ever done. So we can go back years, but yeah, we'll pull up stuff from the last couple of months, few months. In my mind, Tiffany, you do like 50 projects a year because you're always busy. You do. And you do. You work a lot. You do a lot of a lot of things at once. And so Mm -hmm. you've had this career that has afforded you the opportunity to do all sorts of different types of projects. Yeah, I'm really lucky that the projects that I'm working on, I always say that a project needs to have at least two of four um, pillars, if that's the right word. You know, it has to be 
creatively rewarding, personally rewarding, professionally rewarding, or financially rewarding. And you're so lucky when you can find all four. So I've been lucky that most of them I'm usually hitting two to four, maybe not as creatively rewarding, maybe not as financially rewarding, but you feel good working on it. You love the people that you're working with, or you're just working on a show that you know that other people are excited about and you're excited about creatively and professionally. When you do a show that's big and it's getting a lot of buzz, it's exciting. It's exciting yeah. a lot for my family who doesn't understand film, but they recognize the names. <laughs> now they start to get it a little bit more. What are you watching now? Oh my gosh. Um, I just finished watching The Patient. Uh-huh. I just married. Yeah, I just, I mean, Donald Gleason and Steve Carell. It's just like, it's a two-hander of just a masterclass in acting. Um, have you watched it yet? I have watched it. Yes. And I thought some of the spe- specifics, like, by the way, the way they made up Don Hall's face. Yeah. The like, orangey. Yeah. Look like someone that was living in a basement. Yes. Just sort of all of those details. For sure. Yeah. Did you like it? I was excited to watch every week. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, too. I thought for me, there were some parts were hard to get my arms around Mm -hmm. but the cast I thought was phenomenal Mm -hmm. and to see Eamon in that role and all of those all of those beautiful actors the way they used David Alan Greer David Alan Greer the work David Alan Greer did in it Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting you know why I paused I guess I didn't want the ending to be the ending I don't want to spoil it but what happens at the end yeah I I guess I can't spoil it either I liked it because you can absolutely it's... spoil it. Hey, if you haven't watched The Patient yet, fast forward. Okay, go on. Yeah, fast forward. <laughs> no, I liked, I liked that it was sort of ambiguous and it wasn't a clean ending. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like life. Totally. You know, there wasn't a bow on top. It wasn't kind of cleaned nicely. There was some, there was enough closure for the things I wanted closure for. And there's enough ambiguity for me to go, okay, what would happen after this? That's true. I also really liked what Andrew Leeds did in Uh, it, the way he immersed himself in, you know, whatever. I'm making this like funny hunching my body over thing right now as I'm talking to Tiffany. The way he embodied that character, I was was really excited for him. Yeah, I thought that the acting was really strong. It was unique seeing a serial drama told in 22 to 30 minute episodes. I think weekly, that was different for me. Yeah, The pace was different. I'd watched the first half of the season and then I was so anxious about what was going to happen later that I stopped watching until episode eight finished and then I just re-marathoned the whole thing. And I felt like that momentum was the way to go. But yeah, Yeah. so that's what I've been watching lately. I thought the performances were incredible. Um... And then sometimes I just want to turn my brain off. It's funny because occasionally I'll make fun of my friends in the industry and who aren't in the industry who watch TV shows that I'm like, why would you watch that fluff? <laughs> and then I find myself sometimes if I have 45 minutes to spare and all I want to do is just watch Bling Empire. <laughs> yes. I know so many mm-hmm. casting directors that are real into reality TV. Yes, yeah. because of that, sometimes you need to turn your brain off. Yeah, completely. And I feel like emotionally invested in them. And I'm, I love seeing a bunch of Asian Americans just thriving, you know, in LA. Did you finish this new season? No, because I watched Dubai Bling last week instead of watching. Listen, this new season of Bling Empire, I finished last weekend. I was super Oh my gosh. Right? I hear the Kane drama is still happening. It just stirs so much drama. I live for it. (laughs) Kevin goes back home. He's from 
Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or right outside Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yeah. He's from Amish country. Yeah. So not only is he a Korean adoptee by a white family, right? But it's also like Amish country. Like for so, like his family was in yeah, Amish country. His folks aren't. His dad's a. He goes back to buy a car. His dad has a car dealership. Mm -hmm. uh, he and Kane go back to buy a car, which then he wrecks as soon as he drives it off the lot but is he not a guy who lives in LA who doesn't know how to drive when you live in LA by the way he bought a Tesla drives oh. it off the lot in Pennsylvania and wrecks it no like immediately after yeah anyway anyway yes Bling I'm so Empire I'm, I'm there with you 100% if you like it you should watch Dubai Bling I do need to watch that. Also, there was that Real Housewives of Dubai that the someone. Oh, I didn't watch that one. I just oh saw that gosh. they have a second season, and it's it's like a one woman is married to an older Bollywood star, and you know. Oh, fun! Well, they have that one on Netflix called "What the Secret Lives of Bollywood Wives." I think I watched that during like late COVID. Maybe that's the one I'm actually thinking of. It's and it's so funny because I guess it's like chefs, high level chefs, and when they go home, all they want are chicken McNuggets. <laughs> I have to say, I watch everything, but I know, are you watching American Gigolo right now? No. I need sure. someone else to watch. Mm -hmm. Wendy O'Brien cast it. And it's interesting because the cast is now people with like Sandrine Holtz in it, Gretchen Mulls oh. in it. John Bernthal plays the Richard Gere role. He's doing his best oh, Pacino Bernthal thing. Him. He's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Leland Orser, who I love Leland really? Orser. Yes. Uh, wow. Leland Orser's in it. Um but I just sort of can't quite figure to me tonally it's a little all over the place, but I yeah, love her I performances. Rosie O'Donnell's in it. She plays this tough kind of Long Island, Staten Island cop, right? Who's investigating like why Julian, why the Richard Gere character was framed for a murder. She does oh, a really good job. Geez. Yeah. But anyway, that's like a pretty dark and they have it like very seedy LA. So yes, sometimes my palate wants the Bling Empire. And <laughs> yeah. sometimes I'm like, all right, let's watch a couple episodes of American Gigolo and see what John Burke yeah, Paul's doing right exactly. now. Exactly. Exactly. That's how I go. I tend to go for like really kind of gritty cable. Otherwise I just go hard fluff. Yes. Saw Ticket to Paradise last night. Did you like it? I haven't seen it yet. I want to go see it this weekend. It's cute. So here's yeah. what's interesting. I went to go see it with, he's a sound guy for dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because we were both like, that was cute and walked out. We're waiting in the elevators. And he was like, it's just too sterile. Like it's that it was too sterile. Listen, it's a big polished rom-com. It's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. But it was so interesting to hear someone geek out about their area that I don't know very much about. And he was yeah. explaining it to me. He's like, when we're talking, there's edges around people's voices and when they talk. So when I'm like, hello, Tip, there's a, a beginning edge yeah. and an ending edge. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to explain this well, but I think as like geeks for what we do, it's I love mm -hmm. learning about what people are passionate about, what they do. And he was saying they have really sophisticated software right now, of course, that you feed it into. Mm -hmm. But the software's job now is to figure out where the edges of the dialogue are and then what is just background noise. So in Ticket to Paradise, Whoa. it would be like the Balinese families um, murmuring and the ocean and the sea and the mm -hmm. birds, right? Yeah. So he was talking about for him in that movie, they had cleaned it up too much. Interesting. It's very much a trend now. He likes when you can hear a little bit of the outside, when you can the hear. Ambient. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is interesting. He was saying he has a client who 
who uh, comes in at some sort of a, a comedy television show. And they'll be like, what's that sound? And they're like, well, that's the cloth on his suit rubbing. Like, can we take that down? So all of oh. these things, I just was yeah. interested because I hadn't thought that about it. That is so interesting. It makes sense. I started know. thinking about how he was describing the sound for him of it feeling too yeah. sterile. And how for me that kind of transferred and traveled through the rest of the movie. Totally. When you watch movies or TV, do you, do you turn off the casting mind? I do. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It's not an easy answer. So first of all, when I watch things at home, I watch it with subtitles. Yeah, me too. By the way, my father got me doing this with Outlander. <laughs> <laughs> Was that I, just the accent? I had, yeah, I had recommended Outlander to my parents and my dad was like, oh, I just put on the subtitles. I was like, that's so smart. Yeah. Because through the, through the brogues that he could, we could understand. hundred percent. So everything I watch at home has a subtitle on it. Yeah. Yes. I am absolutely looking at, at actors if I don't recognize them going like, oh, who is that? Oh, I really like them. But I'm able to really enjoy the movie. I yeah. will make notes or go to IMDb there to see the name or wait yeah. till after. The casting brain is always working and I 100% enjoy whatever I'm watching. Yeah, I think I'm the same way. And I enjoy it more if there's a good cast, but I don't think it's because I'm looking for a good cast. It's just that to me, a good cast makes a good movie or TV show. So yes. then overall, I can enjoy the scope if I enjoy the cast. Yes. Brooke Greenstein was talking about he had just finished Bad Sisters, right? And Eve Hewson mm -hmm. is wonderful in it, but he didn't mm -hmm. know her because he didn't watch The Nick and some other things. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching it and being like, wait, is that Eve Hewson? That's what my casting brain is doing all the time. Wait, mm -hmm. is that so-and-so? Or yeah. who is that? They're really yeah. interesting. I think there was some meme that I saw recently and it was someone going, me being really anal retentive about be, being focused while watching my TV show. And then me in 15 minutes looking up everyone on IMDb and forgetting what the plot of the movie is that I'm watching. <laughs> Listen, I think because there is so much out there now, mm -hmm. something really interesting has happened to all of our attentions. Yes. For me, there's definitely what I'll refer to as the loading the dishwasher show. Yeah. Absolutely. Holding the laundry Right, show. exactly. I've also heard filmmakers complain about people are, I don't want to watch a film on streaming, but mm -hmm. we'll easily sit down and watch 13 hours of whatever the series is. Yeah. Know? Yeah, it's true. It's Have true. you watched From Scratch yet? No. Should I be? It's funny because like with my work schedule, I find that I get like one series that I can watch per two months and then yeah. I grab it into my weekend. So hopefully if it's like one season I can watch over a weekend, then yeah. I'll end up doing it. It's, it's lovely. Put it on your list for the holidays. Nice, I'm looking it up. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I'm gonna add it scratch to it. Zoe Saldana. So it's um, an African-American woman goes to Italy to study art oh. before she goes to law school or something like this, right? And then that's winds great. up falling in love based on Tembi Locke, the actress Tembi Locke. Yeah, She wrote it based on her life with her sister. I think they wrote a novel and then they made it into a series. And Reese Witherspoon's oh, wow. company picked up the book. Yeah. So the other thing that's interesting is it's sort of thing that was like made by sisters. Well, Italy, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. You can always suck me into any movie where it has like a beautiful. That's what I'm excited about with what from Paradise is just the Balinese part of it. I just have such wanderlust right now. 
they, I think they did it in Australia, if I'm remembering correctly. They filmed it in Australia. Oh, they did. They did it during COVID, during yes, Australia. Yes, yes. Oh, because right. that's right. But it's beautiful. Yes, the yeah. wilderness part of it. I was lucky enough. I went to Italy twice this past year. Did I, you really? I, so I just got my citizenship. I went at the beginning of this year and then loved it so much. I went back again in July. And so my five-year plan is to be able to work there three months a year or something. I know? think it's actually like Europe, especially Western Europe, is the best place to work if you're in film because you, you can kind of have your whole day in Europe. And then by dinner time, you start your work day. Yeah. So like, as long as you're good having that balance, like I did Italy, Europe was like my last trip before COVID and it was the best place to work from. Tiffany, you've got to take a trip. You've got to take one. I really do. I really do. I really do. Yeah, I feel it. I feel it. I did go to New York and Hawaii over Christmas last year, but I just mean like in terms of a real like travel. Like a overseas. vacation. I'm excited for you to take one. Do you have to a sense of where you want to go next? Gosh, I don't know. Probably Europe again. It's always my default because there's so many places I haven't been there. Otherwise, there's so many parts of Asia that I also haven't covered. But Asia is not great with work hours. I've definitely done like Zoom auditions from Bangkok at two in the morning. <laughs> it's not ideal. No. It's not ideal. So probably Europe again. If I can do like a month in the south of France and then just have my day in France and then go have dinner and then start the work day until the wee hours of the morning, I'd be really happy doing that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about... So you are casting Canadian projects and you are casting American projects. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I'd say that they're primarily American now. There aren't yes. too many Canadian content ones, but I'd say like 99% are American projects that shoot in Vancouver. How is they're filming tons and tons and yeah. you get a lot of Warner Brothers does a lot up there that there mm-hmm. is a lot of stuff going on in Vancouver, in mm-hmm. Toronto, and then in all the be- beautiful little snowy places for all the Christmas movies. Yeah. Which somehow manages to be Vancouver in August. I don't know how that happens, but they make it work. (laughs) The potato flake snow. Yeah, exactly. Potato flake snow and like foam in the background, basically. I mean, production here for Canadian projects, I think that it's a little bit busier out east. I don't know why that ends up being, but I think that Toronto has a lot of the more Canadian content projects. There's a few indies that come out to Vancouver. But I would say in general, Toronto is more focused on like CBC content. Mm-hmm. content tends to be out east yes. well I'm remembering seeing I was friends for a moment and oh. when his that would have been CBC and I remember seeing those yeah. headquarters which is close yeah. to the Blue Jay Stadium yeah exactly right and so that is a hub for so much production out there Huge. And like Netflix has just put their Canadian headquarters in Toronto too. Toronto's always been really busy, but I think between CBC, CTV, you know, City, all of them are based in Toronto. That plus Netflix, like they're booming. Mm. (laughs) When you see young in their career actors Mm -hmm. and they say, Tiffany, what should I be doing? What advice do you give actors who want to get into this and build a career? The first thing I do is tell them if there's anything else that you think will make you equally as happy, do it. Because acting is not easy. The industry is not easy. I wouldn't say you have to be a glutton for punishment, but you basically have to want to die to not, if you're not acting in order to do it. So if there's anything else that can make you just as happy, you should do it first. And then if after that they go, okay, nope, I'd rather die than not be an actor, then, then I go, okay, do the work and do the work smartly and focus on your craft and not being famous. Mm-hmm. Cause I think a lot of people focus on 
social media following. It's so stupid to me. I don't know if you agree, but I find, you know, there's a lot of huge stars who don't have active social media and they manage to do okay. You know, do you want to be famous or do you want to be an artist? Don't spend your hours trying to make content for social media. Focus on your craft, focus on your headshots, your training, running your lines, breathing exercises, voice exercises. I find that with a lot of young actors, they're not spending enough time on their voice. I tend to be someone who doesn't like vocal fry. And I find it's funny because my voice is so exhausted. Sometimes that I veer into vocal fry and it's not meant to be a thing. It's just my voice is weak. But for actors who haven't done that breathing and voice training, focus on that. People don't spend enough time on that. Yes, that's absolutely true. I agree with you on social media. It's come up on several of my interviews because a lot mm -hmm. of young actors are like, do I need to have a social media presence? Do I need to build it up? What we've said is I would use it and casting directors would go and use it if we needed it for something, but that was more about looking at a piece of content or a picture of like, look, they can look gritty or look, they can look, totally. you know, if it happened to be there, then mm -hmm. I would use it to help get the actor the job. The amount yeah. of followers never, ever never pushed it over the edge as far mm -hmm. as winning someone the job. The person has to be able to act. There have been some social media people that, or reality people rather, who have crossed over. And those are the ones that went and did the work, that got into a class, that yeah. worked with good representation, that got themselves to a place of where they were able to um, practice the craft in a way that yeah. made them hireable. Yeah, exactly. And those people are far and few between, but they also did the work for their craft was the key, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. People who want to be actors and I think are aspiring to be in the movie where they're only hired because they have a high social media following. So assume that you want to be doing stuff that really challenges you as an actor. Your social media following is never going to be relevant. John Power spoke to this as well. If you are a social media star, that is full time. And mm -hmm. getting some guest star is actually taking money out of your yeah. bank account, yeah, right? Sure. Those are full-time jobs being a social media yeah. influencer. I, I met someone recently that he sort of popped off in the middle of COVID mm -hmm. and this has become his full-time job and it's paying the bills. He wants to be an actor, but wow. the time and the, the amount of time it takes him to shoot and edit and get stuff up really does take away from him being able to Huge. You know, exactly. But it's also, as my grandfather would say, not digging ditches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? We're very lucky to do what we do. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah. You answered the question. Another big question from actors is, are you watching every tape that you ask for? Every tape. And I, in full transparency, my process for it is, there's the actors who I used to always bring into the room, right? And those people are the ones who I'm definitely going to watch their tapes no matter what. Then you start having the wild cards when I'm talking about the people who weren't on my radar before, but they were a push or they've been submitted a bunch of times and I would just want to see what they're up to. I'll have someone who's very qualified in my office be the one to pre-screen. So pre-screen doesn't mean pre-screening everybody. I still watch the tapes to the people in my pool. There is going to be a pool of actors who aren't on my radar and I don't have time to watch those tapes, but those are the people who my office will vet for me and say, you should really watch these as well. So someone in casting is watching every single tape. I'm watching the bulk of them, uh, but I'm also watching the pre-screens too. I'm watching the selects from pre-screens to get more people on my radar. 
you have always run a very tight office with people that you have trained, trained, trained that mm -hmm. love this and have the same amount of passion for this mm -hmm. that you do. Yeah. The people who are watching my tapes are people who have casting background, acting background, and they've worked for me for at least like eight to one of them has worked for me for 12 years now. Once since I was doing those MOWs after the recession hit, I have people who've worked for me since then. Is there anything that actors have been doing on self-tapes or things that you've noticed that you would say, don't do this, guys? Have any pet peeves mm. popped up? Um, I think people who over-stylize the edit of their tape. You know, like, yes, you should have good lighting. Yes, you need to have good audio. Yes, you need to look clear. But we're talking like people who put music over their slate card you know, or people who feel like they have to overcompensate and show their personality in their slate clip because we don't have that interpersonal interaction anymore. I don't need to see a really big gimmicky kind of slate name, height, city. That's really all I need to see. <laughs> Anything forced gimmicky or music video, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. I appreciate the effort, but the whole point of a self-tape is to replace an audition experience. So it should just be a blank wall and good lighting, like what we had in studios. If your scene takes place in a kitchen, it doesn't mean you should be shooting it like you're in that you're in the kitchen. Do yes, <laughs> yeah. And some actors have done that, and every casting director I know has spoken to that being really distracting because mm -hmm. then they're paying more attention to the business or you know the print on your tile in your <laughs> kitchen Absolutely. or whatever it is than yeah. really being in the scene. Absolutely, absolutely. The whole point of a self tape isn't just to show how you would be as the character it's to show how would you act in an audition environment so it should all be the same for people chest up blank wall good lighting you're reminding me when demo reels really started getting slick with editing and the music mm -hmm. and everything else yes. i would be so annoyed by mm -hmm. the super long opens to music yeah i need to know that you can smoke a cigarette in slow motion <laughs> yeah they're evoking yeah. a mood but you're yeah, going yeah. to hey jude or yeah, you know totally. take your robe off to yeah when that would take too much time it was like no just get to the scenes just i get, get that it's scene. cool and you're spending the money but when yeah. that was 30 seconds 120 yeah. seconds of just music video cool montage yeah. nonsense it was a yeah. waste of time agreed because i think that maybe the people who were doing demos like that didn't quite understand what the purpose of their demo was. But to them, it was going like, this is me showing you the best that I've ever done. And I'm going to take you on this journey. But for me, like demos are just very practical of like at time marker 0043, you see them in a dramatic scene. Yes. I want to know where's the comedy and where is the drama so, yeah. so I can find those things. And I listen, I think a lot of those were the editing shops too. They were trying to make their buck and be like, look at how cool For this sure. is. But when you get headshots, there's a different headshot that your mom is going to like on her mantle. Yes. The one that is going to sell you, yeah. you know, as, as an actor. Yeah. Those are two different things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you have. Have you had actors ask you to look at their headshots before? Oh my God. Birthday parties, like, oh. <laughs> you know, standing out on the sidewalk. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't mind it in the right circumstance. I love giving feedback on headshots because I love looking at headshots. Um, but yeah, all the time. I like a really interesting headshot that doesn't try to be too weird. A film and TV headshot is so different from a commercial headshot. 
you're trying to sell yourself as an actor versus selling yourself as an actor who can sell toothpaste is how it's kind of distilled. But I think that people need to really invest in their headshots, not being too overprocessed, not too photoshopped, not too edited or glossy. I like an editorial headshot, but not too editorial. It shouldn't look like something that's out of a GQ or Vogue. I want to be able to recognize you when I see you in person. That is huge. I once had a rather mortifying callback experience in person like 10 years ago with a director who the actor's headshot was a very modely looking like her with like her fuzzy turtleneck as do I And he actually looked at her face and held up the headshot and said, who's this? Who's this? She was like 19 years old and I was mortified for her. But I understand what he was getting at. Could have finessed it a little bit better. Sure. But we're not looking for a modeling headshot that looks like you from a few years ago. We're looking just for a good quality picture of what you look like now. Warts and all. It's like online dating. <laughs> That's the analogy I always use. Yes. If it's- I pick the guy who looks like this and he looks like this, I know what I'm in for and I'm stoked about it. But if I'm looking for the guy who looks like Brad Pitt and then he doesn't look like that, I'm looking at every way that your headshot doesn't live up to how you actually look. And sometimes they're not looking for Brad Pitt. I just want someone who looks like what I'm looking for. Yes. And if you're not a conventionally attractive person either, it's fine. But just make it a good quality picture of you, however you just look. Whether you don't fit into the normal, you know, standards of beauty, it's fine. Just make it a good quality picture. I find the actors, the ones that are really responding to, do you do this? I watch something and I go, oh my God, I love that face. Yes. And those are always the non-conventional Yeah, I feel like I've been really lucky and the projects that I worked with with you is that we always really encourage diversity in an organic way. And it wasn't just ethnic diversity, although that was a huge priority for us too, but it's just sort of interesting faces so you don't have the same cookie cutter people on TV. I think we were really successful there. Yeah, it came in sort of with that because that just is what was interesting to me. And Mm -hmm. I don't think I've said this to you, but when I started Mm -hmm. ABC Family, Grey's Anatomy had just come out Mm -hmm. and I went, that's what the world looks like. That's what I want my cast to look like. So we did that with Greek. Certainly with something like Kyle XY, it was harder because everyone, it was a family and everyone was Caucasian. And this was 2005 when, when we made headway. We had a lot of work to do and we made headway. Mm-hmm. And you were always very, very good at that. I always try to put my finger on what makes it so special. How do you think about it? How do you think about what you do? Hmm. I think it's kind of twofold. One is the creative process, which sounds so cliched, but it's true. I think that's why so many people love it. I love seeing and promoting creators and artists. Ultimately, casting directors were like glorified headhunters and HR HR managers. We're the ones looking for the best people for the job. That's what we do. And we try to promote people who we know have the talent and the ability. And then I think on the flip side, when I got into casting, I was a one woman show until 2016. Actually, it's funny. I got laid off in 2009. I barely worked from 2009 to 2012. 2012, I got Mortal Kombat. I worked for four years where I was doing everything by myself. I had no assistant, no associate. Everything from marking up sides and doing all of the admin work fell on me and the casting part. And I never had any intention of being a business owner or a leader or a boss. When I started hiring assistants in 2016, it was just because I just didn't have enough hours in the day, literal hours in the day. And I'll do 20 hour days when I have to. And then I'm like, at some point, I just needed more help. Having a staff and being a business owner is something I never signed up for. (laughs) And I love my team. I love my team and I love working with my team. 
And I love that we get to go on these adventures every time we have a project that we're excited about. And even the projects that we end up not being excited about when we're working on them, we love that we're working on them together. Yes. It sounds so cheesy. They'll never hear this. (laughs) The thing when you are a casting director and there's someone that you believe in or have been championing and keep giving opportunities to, and then when they book the thing, it's just the best. Huge. You just feel so excited and so happy for them. Yeah. Yeah, whether it's a series reg or whether it's like your one-line co-star role, the person who books their first one-line co-star role is probably even more excited than the veteran actor who's booked their umpteenth recurring guest star role. And you have changed a life and made their day, and now you've afforded their rent or their headshots and you've encouraged them to stay in it. That's so exciting. Tiffany, what made you happy this week? Oh, my God. Um, Shit. My entire week has been work. What has brought me joy? You have brought me joy. I, one of my readers who has worked with me now for about eight years has now become a new casting assistant. He's decided to make the switch and leave acting and join casting just based on his enjoyment of working with me and working with the team. And he said, I think that I'm going to find a lot of joy in casting. So he started this week in the casting realm. And his goal is to become a casting associate, maybe a casting director. And it's the first time that I've had someone who won has decided to change their entire career path because of the effect that I've had. And two, want to build it with me. That's really exciting. Aww, that is is really exciting. Yeah. And it's a beautiful opportunity. It's easier to hold the perspective in the audition process once you've been in the room and worked as a reader. Absolutely. Every single one of my readers is always saying how they're not scared going into audition rooms or doing self-tapes anymore because they know that casting is always on their side. Yes. You you know, we're not looking to waste actors' times. We're not looking to say no to people. The best compliment I've ever gotten from a director was someone who said, you've made my job harder because there are so many good actors that I don't know who to choose. That's the best compliment that anyone could give you as a casting director. So of course I I want to have an embarrassment of riches. Yes. I love that. That is such a good compliment. Yeah. I remember it was like 10 years ago and I remember it to this day. Tiffany, this conversation has been great. Thank you so much for your time. I just want to check in with you. Is there something else that someone needs to tell actors this? Now that we're two years into COVID, I don't see there necessarily being a change in going back into the room. I don't know how it is in LA, but in Vancouver, I don't see film and TV going back into the room in the near future. But just know your time is value. We appreciate what you guys are doing for self-tapes. We know that it's hard. And it was hard for everybody. We're trying to adjust and we're in your corner. Your tapes are being watched. Because when you ask me that, that's a question that's come up a few times. Are my tapes being watched? And I get it. It's that whole throwing it into the ocean thing, right? Your tapes are being watched. We're keeping them. We keep them on file. And we're always fighting for you. I now have a very robust, multi-terabyte database of self-tapes that we're using to get people jobs. Yesterday, I was pulling four or five different auditions to get people jobs. So it's not a waste of your time. Stay with it. And just know that casting is on your side. Even if it doesn't seem like it, just because we're silent doesn't mean that we're not here. We're watching your tapes behind the scenes and we're rooting for you, even if it doesn't get back to you. I love that. Thank you for that. (laughs) It's so good to see you. So good to see you too. It's so good to see you. This was fun. I feel like I talked too much, but I I loved all your questions. You're such a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 
these are helping you know the feedback from actors just being like oh my gosh thank you for this mm -hmm. i i think yeah. there's a lot of this part is like the woo woo part this is more about personal work but there's a lot of healing and being witnessed and just in community and sharing mm -hmm. and, and i love being able to share these great people that i know with actors every casting person is different too and i think the conversations are really interesting i loved hearing how you started and yeah. I think it's good because everything that also is reiterated, the themes that emerge are like staying focused, staying tenacious, remembering the parts that you love, knowing that everyone, our side and on your side, has tough breaks. Mm -hmm. And and your initial advice is also really true. I heard it too going to theater school. If you could do anything else, do it. You need to have such an ability for distress tolerance in this. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's also what drew me to getting my master's degree in spiritual psychology was I was really drawn to being in this crazy business, being a workaholic, but also how do we take care of ourselves? How do we speak to ourselves better about this? How do we, for me, how do I not let it under my skin and make me crazy? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, this idea of like people getting canceled, like I should be able to say what I want on social media. Yes, you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you are using hate speech... <laughs> Yeah. Right. If there are certain things that you are communicating, mm -hmm. of course, people are going to have reactions to that. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of times it's not canceling, it's capitalism. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And sometimes I think that when people say that whole, I have a right to say whatever I want, your right to free speech only means that your right to not being arrested for expressing your views, like legally, literally arrested. It doesn't mean that there are no ramifications to things that you say. <laughs> How do people confuse the two of them? You yeah. have a right to free speech. We have a right to say that you're an asshole. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. I could geek out and talk about this stuff all day. I know. I Tiffany, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. It was so good to see you and catch up with you. Oh, so great to see you too. I'm going to try being in LA in March for the RDO. So if I am, I will hit you up. Yes. But awesome. So, thank you, thank so, you. so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. I hope you have a delightful day today and share the love. Tell someone that you appreciate them. Tell them you're glad they exist. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast on your socials and with any artists you think would dig it. And send me your questions. I have many more casting folks coming in to share with you all. See you next time. <laughs>